San Antonio, Texas. Anybody ever been there? San Antonio, Texas. All right, we got a few. That's cool, good. Well, then some of you all know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, for me, San Antonio, Texas holds uh, kind of a special place in my heart. And the reason San Antonio, Texas holds a space, special place in my heart um, is because in the fall of 1994, the Wheaton College men's and women's soccer teams were together on a trip to San Antonio, Texas, pointing to it like it's right there. Um, it's over there in Afton. Um, we were on the way to San Antonio, Texas together uh, to thoroughly destroy a couple uh, poor San Antonio college teams. But on that trip, I noticed in particular this freshman girl with flowing blonde hair. And, and, and I, I have great memories of San Antonio, Texas because uh, it is uh, the place where my relationship with my wife began. If you think back to your relationships uh, with significant people in your lives, you often have a story of how your relationship began, the place, the basis for it, the foundation of it, uh, maybe the time. You can remember, oh, that happened when this happened. There's this story that develops about how your relationship uh, began. And uh, one of the special places, in fact, for San Antonio, uh, for us, is the beautiful River Walk downtown. And if you've been down to San Antonio, you know the River Walk well. And uh, so here's a picture of the River Walk. That's us on the, uh, the boat right there taking a tour. Um, actually, you can't see us because we're in the back making it. No, we're not. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, that's not true at all. I grabbed this off the Internet. Um, and, and we didn't actually take a tour. But, but I want to show you that that Tommy Stagg's likeness was in this picture. You can kind of see it from about halfway there. A dead ringer for Tommy Stagg's there in the front row, kind of smiling. He's our associate minister if you don't know who Tommy is. I promise we waited for the second date to start making off. Totally, totally lying. Um, one thing I remember from that whole day is a tour of the Alamo. And you go to these famous places and you know about the history and you're learning about the significant things that happened there and it becomes a marker and you remember things about it. But for me, that whole day, and, and this is not an exaggeration, that whole day, I pretty much remember almost nothing other than thinking to myself, <laughs> man, her hair sure is beautiful when it flows in the wind like that. <laughs> Honestly, I don't, really, I don't really remember the Alamo if you know what I'm saying. <clears throat> so that's kind of the start for us. And thankfully, the, uh, the foundation, the basis of our relationship uh, quickly moved beyond something uh, other than just her beautiful hair, which she still has. Um, now, I'm sure many of you have similar stories of those kinds of relationship beginnings. And we've said that this series isn't particularly just about marriage. It's about the body of Christ. It's about marriage. It's about our relationships with our friends and our coworkers. And the kinds of things we're saying apply to all relationships, honestly. But one of the things that's particularly helpful for relationships is beginning times, those, those memories of those stories of how those relationships began. And, and I came across this, this clip. Uh, you may have seen this before. I showed it about four years ago, I think it was. Uh, this is a great clip of some stories of how some older couples began their relationships. Let's watch this. I was sitting with my friend Arthur Kornblum in a restaurant. It was a Horn and Dalet cafeteria. 
And this beautiful girl walked in, and I turned to Arthur, and I said, Arthur, you see that girl? I'm going to marry her. And two weeks later, we were married. And it's over 50 years later, and we are still married. We fell in love in high school. Yeah, we were, we were high school sweethearts. But then after our junior year, his parents moved away. But I never forgot her. You never forgot me. <laughs> no, her, her face was burned on my brain. And it was 34 years later that I was walking down Broadway, and I saw her come out of Toffinetti's. We both looked at each other, and it was just as though not a single day had gone by. She was just as beautiful as she was at 16. He was just the same. He looked exactly the same. <laughs> we were married 40 years ago. We were married three years. We got a divorce. Then I married Marjorie. But first you lived with Barbara. Right, Barbara. But I didn't marry Barbara. I married Marjorie. Then he got a divorce. Right. Then I married Katie. Another divorce. Then a couple of years later at Eddie Colicchio's funeral, I ran into her. I was with some girl I don't even remember. Roberta. Right, Roberta. But I couldn't take my eyes off you. I remember I snuck over to her and I said, what did I say? You said, what are you doing after? Right. So I ditched Roberta. <laughs> we go for coffee. A month later, we're married. 35 years today after our first marriage. We were both born in the same in hospital. 1921. Seven days apart. In the same hospital. We both grew up we one block away from tenements. each other. On the Lower East Side. On Delancey Street. My family moved to the Bronx we when I was 10. lived on Fordham Road. Hers moved when she was I 11. I lived on 183rd Street. For six years, she worked on the 15th floor. I worked for floor a very prominent as a nurse Where I had a practice on the 14th floor, the very same we building. We never met. Never met. Can you imagine that? Do you know where we met? In an elevator. I was visiting family. In the Ambassador Hotel in Chicago, He was Illinois. on the third floor. I was on the twelfth. I rode up nine extra floors just to keep talking to her. Nine extra floors. Uh, he was a head counselor at the boys' camp, and I was a head counselor at the girls' camp. And they had a social one night, and he walked across the room. I thought he was coming to talk to my friend Maxine, because people were always crossing rooms to talk to Maxine. But he was coming to talk to me, and he said, I'm Ben Small of the Coney Island Smalls. <laughs> At that moment, I knew. I knew the way you know about a good melon. A man came to me and said, I found a nice girl for you. She lives in the next village. And she is ready for marriage. We were not supposed to meet until the wedding. But I wanted to make sure. So I sneaked into her village, hid behind a tree, watch her washing the clothes. I think if I don't like the way she looks, I don't marry her. But she looked really nice to me. So I said, okay the man. We get married. We married for 55 years.
this is going to sound a little bit elementary, but if you think about it for a second, it's not. Every single one of us is the product of a relationship that at one point was not a relationship. Every single one of us is the product of a relationship that at one point was not a relationship. Which, which is to say that all relationships have a beginning. They all start somewhere. They have a, a foundation. There's something on which a, a relationship is, is based. It could be a whole host of things. And a lot of times, we don't, we don't really act very intentionally about the things that are foundational for relationships, but it could be a whole host of things that naturally become the case. It could be a common environment or geography. We are both from Greene County, and we both remember this land where this building was built when it was farmland and nothing else was around here. It could be because we both worked at Magnavox in the 70s. It could be because our last name is Shelton or uh, Wilhoit or Wakefield, but probably not from around here. <laughs> it could be shared interests or goals even. I like coffee, you like coffee, therefore we are friends. Uh, that's how it works in my world. <clears throat> but relationships definitely begin somewhere. They're founded on something. We have the advantage of being believers this side of the cross and having the story of the gospel, having all of Scripture to tell us on this particular rock of the gospel should our relationships be founded. And I, I want to sort of step back from that and go to the beginning because the problem is that we often give little thought to how relationships begin or why, the basis on which they form, which means that sometimes we often allow things other than the foundational elements of the gospel, of God coming to make himself known to us. We, we sometimes allow those other things to be more foundational for the relationships we have than the gospel itself. After a little time and experience in any relationship, oftentimes there will be this bucking up of sin with one another. And the question for us as believers then becomes not how do we avoid the mess, but what do we do about the mess of our relationships? What do we do about the mess? It's not how to avoid it because you cannot avoid it. You cannot avoid the mess of the relationships. To pretend to be able to avoid it is to live in unreality. It's to try to pretend to keep others at arm's length. The song that Chris just sang was called Dancing in the Minefields, and it says this in the chorus, We're dancing in the minefields, we're sailing in the storm. This is harder than we dreamed, but then it says this, But I believe that's what the promise is for. That's what the promise is for. It's that promise we're going to look at today in Genesis 15 and throughout its development in, in throughout Scripture. So we're going to look at that promise today, the promise that comes from God that is the foundation of all relationships that last through the mess. If you're going to have a relationship that lasts through the mess, it has to be founded on something like the promise of God. So let's look at that in Genesis 15 today. This is one of the first places 
where this promise takes official form in Scripture. Uh, It's talked about and alluded to by God in other places before this. But this is one of the first places where it takes uh, form and kind of becomes official, this promise of God to Abram and then to all of Abram's descendants. So let me set this up for you by talking about Genesis 12 for a second. This is where in Genesis 12 God had called Abram to go from his homeland to a country and to a people he didn't know. So this is what it says in Genesis 12, 1 to, 1 to 3. This is God speaking to Abraham. Uh, later on, he becomes Abraham in chapter uh, 17. Right now, he's Abram from 12 to 15. It says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And then it says this, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that's a pretty big calling. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. It's a pretty big calling. And so here in Genesis 15, Abram is becoming a little worried about being able to fulfill this calling. A little worried about being able to fulfill this calling to be the one through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. I mean, I, I, I would feel that way too. If God had said, you know what, Scott? All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. All of the stars in the sky that you can count doesn't name the number of people, doesn't count the number of people who will come after you that I will bless through you. So up to this point in, in the text, it's just God speaking. It's just God telling Abram, go do this, and Abram obeys. Abram's not talking back until this point in Genesis 15. And up to this point, it's just God speaking and Abram obeying. So now Abram's speaking with God, and he says, uh, basically, he says, I'm a little worried about this plan of yours, God. Uh, Number one, I have no heir, and is this the land that you're promising? So that's where we pick it up in verse 7. This is... 15 verse 7. This is God reassuring Abram in a really cool way. This is how God demonstrates the promise. Look at verse 7. It says, He said to him, this is God speaking to Abram, reassuring him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. In other words, I brought you here. Stick with me. But he said, in other words, Abram said, O Lord God, How am I to know that I shall possess it? How am I to know, God? And God's answer is is this. It's not a sign like we think of it. God, show me something that that I can see this sign, and then I will know, and then it will click, and then I'll remember that you promised this to me. What he says is an answer that he might not have understood as much later until later on, but, but he understood it even in this chapter here. The answer is, God telling Abram, I will be with you. The answer to Abram's question is the presence of God. Let me show you how this develops. This is really cool. God's saying, I will be there with you. I will hold up my end of the bargain and my promise to you. So look at this because this is fascinating stuff. This is a fundamental place in Scripture where God is establishing his relationship with his people. Look at verse 9. In verse 9 there it says, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now this may sound like a weird way to start a relationship, but, but Abram instantly understood 
sort of what God was asking him uh, to do here. This kind of thing was common in the ancient Near East. This kind of thing was common as a ritual in the ancient world uh, where two parties would formalize their agreement. This was a contract that was being made here. They would kill an animal, they would put it into two pieces, and they would put it over against one another uh, far enough so that the two parties could walk through those pieces. And in so doing, they were saying, if I do not keep my end of the bargain by walking through these animal pieces, then, then the same thing that has happened to these animals should happen to me. It was a way that they would bring down a curse upon themselves if they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. That was a pretty common practice uh, for, for holding up contractual agreements. And uh, so that's sort of the background here. It made official the agreement. And so they were saying, may this happen to me if I don't keep my end of the bargain. So Abram is asked by God to get these five animals. These became the foundation for sacrifices later on. But, but Abram's being asked by God to take these animals and to cut them to pieces and put them on the sides. So with that background in mind, Abram thinks, God is about to ask me to make some sort of a promise by walking through these pieces. Now watch what happens. This is awesome. <clears throat> Keep reading verse 10. He brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Some think that maybe they were just too small to cut. And then when birds of prey came down in the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Uh, some think this symbolizes the evil one's constant attack. Keep reading verse 12. It says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, No for certain. This is official covenant language. God making a promise to Abram. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back forth in the Come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And then it says this, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. A smoking firepot and a flaming torch symbolize the presence of God passing between these pieces. God is saying explicitly in, in, in picture form. God is saying, I will hold up my end of the bargain in this relationship. I will be the one that passes through these pieces as the foundation for your relationship with me. He is setting the tone for the relationship by saying, you can't possibly keep your end of the bargain. You, you cannot even begin to go through these pieces, Abram, if you're going to accomplish what I've promised to you. So I will, he says. Verse 18, 
It summarizes that. It says, on that day, and this is real cool, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. On that day, the Lord made a covenant. A covenant is simply a Bible word for an agreement. And when it says the Lord made a covenant, the word for made there is literally cut. It's another way to, to translate that word. The Lord cut a covenant. This is active language. We could also say it that way. On that day, the Lord covenanted with Abram. So the basis of their relationship was God actively covenanting with Abram. It's a decision to stick with one's promise. To covenant is to make a decision to stick to one's promise. And so he covenanted with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. So the success of the covenant, the success of the covenant between God and his people depends on God. The success of the covenant relationship between you and God depends on whether he can keep up his end of the bargain. Which means, among other things, you do not have to depend on people to fill the emptiness they are infinitely unable to fill in your life. It's real easy to make relationships an idol. It's easy to think that people are the fix. It's easy to think that what I lacked from my past will be filled by this relationship. The truth of the covenant being something that was initiated by God means you do not have to depend. In fact, you cannot depend on people to fill the emptiness that they are infinitely unable to fill. Which is a freeing truth for our relationships, on the one hand. On the other, it comes with great responsibility for us as believers. And I want to show you briefly from a couple passages this kind of responsibility that covenant means for us. Covenant doesn't just mean we sit back passively, God does all the work, and we say, yay God, let's just go to heaven and end all this stuff here now. It comes with great responsibility. I'm going to show you a couple passages, uh, both from Corinthians. Uh, we don't have necessarily time to turn there so much, but we'll put them on the, uh, on the screen for you. This is 1 Corinthians 11, familiar passage, 11, 23 to 25. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. This is the Apostle Paul writing. And he's saying, What I got from Jesus, I gave to you. I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. That's a huge phrase. That's a really important phrase. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Two things I want you to see here. Number one, what Christ is doing here, what Christ is doing here in this passage is he is holding up a cup that symbolized his blood. And he is saying, my death means my father held up his end of the bargain. 
Jesus is saying to his disciples, I will walk through those pieces of flesh for you. Jesus is telling his disciples, I will be killed in my flesh so my father can fulfill his promise even made to Abram by walking through the pieces in Genesis 15. That's the first thing what you see here, that Christ is holding up the cup to symbolize that God has has come through on his end of the bargain. The second thing I want you to see is this. In this scene here, Christ is actually sharing his cup with his disciples. This is not an accidental thing. Christ is sharing his cup with his disciples. He says these things, and he drinks from it, and then he passes it around for them to drink. This is not by accident. He's seated at a table with others for the purpose of sharing his bread and his blood, his body and his blood with them. He is saying, I'm leaving in body, but my presence will remain. You're going to have to, you're going to have to carry on this work. When we come to the table and we drink from that cup, we have accepted what the cross did for us so that we also accept the responsibility to duplicate that in the lives of others through the power of God. Look at this in 2 Corinthians 2. This is another really cool passage. Paul picks up on this idea that Christ initiated there at the table that the covenant is responsibility for us. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 to 6. He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be, here's the phrase, ministers of a new covenant not of the letter but of the spirit for the letter kills but the spirit gives life he calls us ministers of a new covenant because of the death of christ which shows that god held up his part of the bargain we are called to minister likewise we're called to minister to others in the same way that god ministered to us paul can't write that unless that's true What Christ did for us to demonstrate that God held up his end of the bargain is the foundation for us having relationships that are about godly growth and not perverting it for our needs. There's a great passage that's been dear to me lately, 2 Timothy 2.3. that says, Share in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Share in suffering like a good soldier of of Christ Jesus. He's equipped us for ministry. He's enabled us to be a part of the battle for souls that Christ came to continue and to initiate for us so that we could be ministers of a new covenant, so that we could stand on the promises of God, Him going through the pieces for us, Him demonstrating Christ's death for us so that we could be ministers of a new covenant. But we are called to minister not by the fakery that pretends that we are perfect. We are called to minister not by the fakery that pretends that we are perfect. Because, let's be honest, church rules make it very possible for us to keep up a good face with one another for an hour on a Sunday. We can go through relationships, keeping up a good face 
ministering out of something that keeps us away from the kind of people who will call us into account. And this isn't just about the minister. This is about all of us. We are called to minister not by the power of a fakery that pretends that we are perfect, but by the power of God's upheld promises. And here's why this is hard for us. Here's why this is hard. When you have, when you have covenanted with God, and you have accepted what Christ did for you on the cross, not only have you covenanted with God, but you have covenanted with the people for whom God gave his life. You do not get the, you do not get the luxury of just covenanting with God alone. He calls each one of us to enter into the same kind of ministry he took on. You see, God doesn't establish relationships the same way that we do. We easily establish relationships based on whether you make me laugh or you listen to me or, or I give you things or I accept you the way that you think you should be accepted or if you like what I like and vice versa. Common geography, shared interests. And what often happens when the goal of our relationships is, is self is that we manipulate them so that we can hide. Years can go by and, and we may not even realize that that's how we've been operating our relationships. And when we do that in relationships, we are demonstrating that we don't trust God's covenant promise. When that happens, when we keep relationships at arm's length so that we try to avoid what we think we are trying to avoid. We don't have to see one another's hurt and our pain and our sin. And then what we do is that we also place limits on God's growth in us. We keep ourselves from hearing God's call to us to allow Him to work in and through the relational mess that we try to keep at an arm's distance. That's why people don't want accountability. That's why the regular old boring everyday body of Christ that calls us to discipline, to growth. That's why the regular old boring everyday faithfulness of showing up in a marriage, of being a faithful co-worker or employee or a boss. That's why those kinds of contexts, the regular old everyday contexts of relationship are the vehicle for God's growth for us. They're the place that holds us accountable. They're the places in which we are called to minister to others in relationship. So we want to continue to learn to be a people who covenant with one another. Who say, my, my, my commitment and promise to you is to continue to stick with you in your mess. You say that to people? You start saying that to people? 
And then you will begin to learn what arm's length looks like. You start making promises to people about sticking with them in the hard stuff, you will begin to learn and feel and experience what keeping you at arm's length is like. But friends, that's what we're, that's what we're called to. We don't have this convenience that says you can do it some other way. This is the work of God. It's the way He's designed us to grow. And so covenant with one another. Let's pray together.